We are, we're back in John today. Uh, for those who are new with us, we are working through the Gospel of John. Uh, it's an eyewitness account of uh, Jesus' life. Uh, the bit that's particularly powerful about the Gospel of John is John just doesn't tell us what happened. He, tell us what, he tells us what it means. Uh, he lays in the first part of John chapter 1. We, we've taken a long time to go through John chapter 1 and the reason why is because John has this prologue. He has this introduction where he lays down uh, a whole bunch of the themes that he's going to unpack in the rest of his book. And John's goal is that you would get to know Jesus. That's what he wants. He wants you to get to know Jesus and to believe in him and trust in him. We, um, we just finished um, the, last, the last John message that I preached, I think about six weeks ago, was kind of about the town crier. You know, who was the town crier for Jesus? Who was the one that was heralding his coming? It was John the Baptist. So we spent some time looking at uh, John the Baptist and John the Baptist declares at the end of the section that we looked at, behold, sorry, toward the end, it might even be in the middle, I can't even remember, but he says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We considered that at Easter, didn't we? Um, and, and today, we are actually going to read about, in John's Gospel, Jesus' first interaction with people. It's interesting. So well, if, you can, if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it up to John chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start at verse 35. John chapter 1, I'll just give you a moment to find that. If you, if you need to know what version we use, because uh, it messes with your head when you read a different version, we use the uh, English Standard Version. John chapter 1, verse 35. John 1, verse 35. The next day... Again, John was standing with two of his disciples, so John the Baptist. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. He's at it again. The two disciples heard him say this, his two disciples, and they followed Jesus. Now, I'll just make a quick note at this point in time. It's like John just lost two of his disciples. Now, that would bother a lot of us, but it doesn't bother John. John knows that he's not, he's not the groom he might be the best man but he's not the groom and so when people that are close to him go I'm out with you and I'm in with him he's really happy about that he's really really happy about that verse 38 Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them what are you seeking they said to him rabbi which means teacher where are you staying so the, the term rabbi is like this idea of a discipleship relationship where the rabbi is a teacher and, and they're students. And he said to them, come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying and he stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour, um, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, 
Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a bit of an insult. He's a bit of a straight shooter. Philip said to him, well, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. All right, let's kick in. Here's uh, the first point for this morning is uh, you. And this, the way that I mean this point is we're standing in a sense as we read this and we're looking at Jesus and we're going, you, look at, look at you, look at what you're actually like. And before we actually dive into the details of this passage a bit, I'd love for us to kind of take a drone view. We just kind of lift up above it all and, and just zoom out a little. Uh, th- this is the first interaction that Jesus is having with people. And I want you to notice something about this interaction. Um, and you'll kind of go, duh. But sometimes we forget it, and it's this. Uh, Jesus is a person. Jesus is a person. Now, there's a bunch of you just going, yeah, okay, we already know that. But, but just slow down for a minute, because there... There are times where we're not particularly good at interacting with Jesus as a person. Um, our, our faith can easily become quite depersonalised. And I want to just run through a bunch of really quick kind of variations about how we can interact with Jesus um, in a way that's not as personal. Here's the first one. Instead of interacting with God as a person, we interact with truth. He is the truth. There's no doubt about it. But the truth is not some external entity, this reality that exists somewhere else out there that everyone has to abide by, including God. You know, the truth is embodied in the person of Christ. It's embodied in the person of God. And sometimes in Christendom, we have the tendency to treat Christianity as a theory to be learned or an argument to be won. And we drill in and we study and we learn and we learn and we learn and we read all these books and we miss the person. We miss the person. I am not against learning the truth. And I'm not against reading. I read all the time. I have a whole list of books on Audible that I haven't listened to yet because I read, literally read, and sometimes I just don't have the time so I listen to books. I think it's really, really important. But the reality is that you can't know the fullness of the truth about the truth without knowing the person. You have to know the person. And it's, and it's both with God all the time. It's like learn the truth and get to know the person. They're connected. Sometimes I think we can slip into having a deeper relationship with the truth than we do with Jesus, with the person. Sometimes we, uh, instead of interacting with God as a person, we interact with a judge. This is uh, kind of the religious approach, right? You live your life before a judge and it's kind of all about your behaviour. 
And God exists to tell you what's right and what's wrong. And he'll tell you when you're wrong. He's the judge of it. And, and there are some people who kind of um, opt in because they back themselves to be disciplined enough and be good enough and, and, and work hard enough to be able to do that kind of relationship with God as a judge. But then there's a whole bunch of people who just opt out and they just go, I'm never going to make it. I'm never going to be good enough. And you hear this from people outside the church sometimes where they go, I can't be good enough to be a Christian. There are people, I reckon, that aren't in church today in Toowoomba because they feel like they can't be good enough to be a Christian. God is a judge, that's true, and judges are normally people. But interactions with judges are normally impersonal and distant. That's not what we see in John chapter 1. Sometimes instead of interacting with God as a person, we interact with him as as a rescuer. That God's the one who's going to come and save you. And I, the picture I want to put in your mind here at this point in time is just think about some of the floods that we've seen over the last couple of months, you know. And you've got that situation where someone's in a really, really risky situation and you've got, uh, there's like a cable or a rope that's going across and there's a swift water rescuer who's going out to rescue someone. It's deeply personal for the person who's being rescued and it matters a lot to them, but it's not actually a personal relationship. They don't know who the person is and that once the person's done their job, most of the time they don't even see them again. You don't know them. This is kind of the superhero thing, right, with Batman, <laughs> okay? With Batman, there's, like, there's the bat phone, right? When the city gets in, when Gotham gets into trouble so much that they can't get out of it, what do you do? You get on the bat phone and you call Batman. And he comes and he rescues everyone, but he's not actually connected that much to people. You know, and sometimes I think we can slip into this one easily. You know, and we can, we can even say things like, uh, if you get me out of this, I'll follow you for the rest of my life. But it's not that personal. It's good, but it's not that personal. Sometimes, instead of interacting with God as a person, we interact with a force. A force. And one of the kind of permutations of this one is, we can kind of go, he is the sovereign God who can do stuff. Uh, We're out of control. It's all over to him. There's nothing we can do. He will do whatever he will do and there's nothing I can do to change that or interact with that. It's kind of the theological version of whatever will be, will be kind of a theological fatalist kind of position. This, this was me big time in the early days in my faith. It's like God's this big powerful force and there wasn't a whole lot of interaction going on between he and I personally. It's not that personal. Here's the last one. Instead of interacting with God as a person, we interact with a system. We interact with a system. You know, uh, I, years ago, (laughs) years ago, here's a confession. Years ago, I said this about the Bible. I used to, and I used to teach it. I I used to say it in high school when I was a teacher. I'd say, um, the Bible is an instruction manual about how life works best. Now, it does help to, to live, right? It does give you lots of helpful things to live, but that's not mainly what the Bible is. The Bible is not mainly a system 
for you to be able to work out how to have a good life. The Bible is mainly a story about a person. That's what it is. That is what the whole Bible is about. It's a story about a person. Sometimes, I mean, we can, you know, we can add a bit of religion in there and now we have religious systems. And, and we're engaging with the religious system and not necessarily engaging with a person. Jesus is a person. He's a person. Have a look at John chapter 1. Um, I'm just going to zip through a bunch of verses. If you can have that open in front of you, um, that will be really helpful. It, it's it's going to nail down some basic things here. And, and all of you would be able to see these. Look at verse 36. He walks around amongst people. Again in verse 36, he actually has a name. His name is Jesus. Go to verse 38, 39, 42. What does he do? Well, he has some conversations with some people. That's what he does. Verse 39, he lives somewhere. Verse 39, look at the personal pronouns that John actually uses to talk about Jesus. Verse 41 to 42, people are eager for those that they know to come and meet the person of Jesus. Verse 37 and verse 43, what happens? People follow him. You see, what you've got in Jesus is you've got a real life person. And everyone around Jesus is kind of working out what they're going to do with this person. And in a sense, Jesus is like any other person. Whenever someone is actually personally present, people around them have to work out how they're going to interact with them. You have to work out what you're going to do with them. See, that's the very nature of relationship is when two people are personally present, uh, you have to work out how the interaction is going to happen. You have to adjust to one another. You have to be on your toes a little bit. It's the nature of relationship. And this is what you actually see in this passage with Jesus, is people are moving and bending around Jesus and people are interacting with him. But it's even more significant than this because uh, Jesus is a colossus of a person. <laughs> what is a colossus? Well, it could be size, but it also, a colossus is, is a person of immense importance or ability. And Jesus is a colossus of a person. It fits Jesus exactly. What do we know about Jesus from John chapter 1? Well, he's God. Everything was made through him. In him is life. He is the light. He's glorious. He's full of grace and truth. He's the Lamb of God, the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He is an incredibly significant person. There is no person more significant than Jesus himself. But all this stuff about him is embodied in a person. It's not embodied in a machine. It's not embodied in a, a structure. It's not embodied in an aardvark. It's in a person. That's who it's in. And you have to work out what you're going to do with him. Now, everyone has to work out what they're going to do with him. This is why all Almost all of the world religions find a place for Jesus because he's such a colossus of a person. You have to work out what you're going to do with him. 
He is an imposing person. He's a grand and impressive person. Amen? Yeah. You have to work out what you're going to do with him. You get to the hinge of Mark's gospel in Mark 8, and there's this interaction with the disciples. I'll just read it for you. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea of Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? You have to work out what you're going to do with him. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you have to do something with him. You have to, you have to work out where he's going to sit in the scheme of your life. And what you see in this passage in John chapter 1 is that people bend around Jesus. You might remember from the early part of uh, uh, the chapter in John chapter 1 is that a lot of people missed him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. What we're seeing here is the first disciples. And it's not, it's not the calling of the disciples to be the tight crew because Jesus actually had lots and lots of disciples, not just the 12. This is like Jesus' first interaction with them. You know, they get to see who Jesus is and it changes the way that they operate a little. Have a look at verse 38 to 39. You've got the story there of uh, Andrew and Simon Peter. And, and, and they see Jesus. So John the Baptist declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They see Jesus. And then they ask this question, which you go, it's, it's, it sounds like a stalker, right? Where are you staying? <laughs> right? But it's not that at all, is it? What are they actually saying? They're saying, we, we want to come and we want to sit down with you. We would like to talk with you. We'd like to listen to you. And we've got some questions that we would like to ask of you. So they sit with Jesus probably from 4pm in the afternoon right through into the evening. Now, would you have liked to have been in, that, in on that one? It's like, hey, I'm, I could be a groupie with Andrew and Peter on that one. Like, let's, just, let's just sit in and listen to that conversation. I wonder what they would have talked about. See, Jesus is a person and he... He sits down and he has conversations with people. Do you, do you ever, ever wonder that for yourself? What would it be like to sit down and have a... What would it be like if you, if you just could sit down and have a four-hour conversation with Jesus? Now, he would do that, right? He would do that because he's a person. You go down a little bit further to 43 to 46, you've got Philip and Nathaniel. It's a second story. Um, and you see the same thing again. You see Philip getting called by Jesus and he bends his life around Jesus, the person of Jesus, and then he, he goes and he gets Nathaniel. And Nathaniel bends his life around Jesus as well. There's this um, Hebrew word in the Old Testament that's often translate, translated as glory in the Old Testament. And um, it's actually kavod. And, and what, the, uh, what the Hebrew word kind of means is weight, it's weightiness. And when, when we're saying about God that God is glorious, and, and John chapter 1 says that Jesus is glory, is we're saying he is weighty. That's what we're saying. Uh, he is weighty and he's important. So when you go for a bushwalk and you walk next to a creek and there's all rocks in the creek... And none of the rocks are moving when the creek runs past. It's because the weight of the rocks is greater than the weight of the water. 
The glory of the rocks is greater in a sense than the glory of the water. So what does the water do? The water bends around the rocks. So when we look at Jesus, we're seeing someone who's incredibly weighty that we bend our lives around. He's more weighty than us. We flow around him. And he is a person. Only you. Verse 41-45. What we've got here in this story is we've got two stories which are kind of parallel stories. Two pairs of people. You've got Andrew and Simon Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. On both occasions, one person encounters Jesus and then they go to the other person and go, we've found the one that we're looking for. And they bring the other person to meet Jesus. So there's two things uh, I want to look at briefly in this. Um, what, what is it that they're looking for? And, uh, and what do they do when they find it? So let's quickly just have a look at what are they looking for? Look at verse 41 and 45. I'm just going to read those. It's what they say to the other person. He first found his own brother, this is Andrew, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So Messiah, that's one of the categories. In verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God. If you go right back to almost the very beginning, after humanity sinned, God lit the fuse for this expectation that someday someone was going to come back and set things straight. And it was at the fall of humanity, God said, one day someone's going to come along and crush the head of the serpent. And this fire of expectation in the Jewish people got lit way back then. And then it just kept going along. And we had, we've got these prophecies in the Old Testament about this person who will come uh, and deal with the, the troubles that, uh, that God's people are experiencing and bring liberation for them and bring shalom, flourishing and wholeness and proper operation. We see that this idea uh, is, is so present in the Gospels because it swirls around Jesus. People want to make him king. They want to just push him up there. There's this sense of a messianic expectation. They don't always understand the very nature of who the Messiah was going to be, but there's this expectation. Now, if you go and do a word search for the word Messiah in the Bible, in the Old Testament, I should say, you won't find it in the Old Testament. Uh, but Messiah actually means anointed one. We read this, the Israelites expected that one day God would send into the world an exceptionally great person, a mighty deliverer, one who would represent him in a very special sense. This coming great one was thought of not as an anointed one, but as the anointed one, the Messiah. He wouldn't merely be another in a long line of prophets, priests and kings. He would be the prophet, priest and king. The anointed one's rule would lead the world back to an Eden-like flourishing. We see evidence of this in uh, Moses' writings. We see evidence of it in the prophets. Uh, But I think that uh, what's being said here is that the prophets is actually... Uh, more broadly, the Old Testament scriptures. Do you see what's going on here? Both Andrew and Philip have this longing for a hero. Have this longing for a Jewish hero, the one who would come and make things right again. And Jesus was the one, whether, regardless of how accurate they had 
that their idea was of the Messiah. Jesus was the one who matched the longing that was in their heart. And I want to I want to say to you this morning that he's the one you're longing for, whether you know it or not. You know that there is a connection between the way that you've made and your deep, deep longings. I'm not talking about the surface level ones, just like my kids to do what I say, or I'd just like to be able to have that nice dishwasher or. Drill down deeper. What, what do you deeply long for underneath? Pleasure? It's just some guilt-free pleasure? Being known and loved? Like fully? Peace? You long for peace? this one meaning maybe you just it's like I just it's long for meaning some of you are probably deep down you're just going I just want justice I want justice um, beauty I long for beauty it's why you stand and look at a sunset for 10 seconds longer than um, other times about this one relief you long for relief comfort about that you just want to flourish just want to do well yeah maybe you've had times where you could say yeah I'm doing really well but now's not one of those people say how are you going you can't you can't say that security just want to be secure do you know um, we could just keep going and going but um what, what these things describe are Eden-like, the Garden of Eden-like, shalom. The things just work properly. Now, the reason why these things existed in the Garden of Eden was because God was in the Garden of Eden. Um, these things are a reversal of what happened in the fall. This was the hope of the Jewish nation, right? That they had lots of other hopes as well. But the, the hope of the Jewish nation was the reversal of what happened in the fall. And I want to, I just want to want to say something to you. Um, there isn't some kind of cosmic Woolworths, right? Where God has all of these things sitting on a shelf and you've just got to go to God's cosmic Woolworths with his credit card and buy them. These things are actually not commodities that exist that you can go and get off a shelf. These are things that you get directly from Jesus by being connected to Jesus. You have to get him if you want them. And you can't actually have them in their fullness without having him. Uh, some of you would uh, remember the story of the rich young ruler, a young man who came to Jesus in, uh, in Mark chapter 10 and he had so much stuff. And he go, comes to Jesus and he goes, uh, how do I inherit eternal life? What's he doing? Well, I think one of the things he's doing is he's treating eternal life like a commodity. He's saying, how do I add this to my portfolio? How do I get that? 
Now, if you read uh, 1 John chapter 5, John says in 1 John 5, he says uh, that Jesus is eternal life. He says it like that. Jesus is eternal life. It's around verse 20. So how do you get eternal life? Well, you get it when you get Jesus. That's what happens. That's why John can say in his gospel that eternal life is to know Jesus. And that's why eternal life, if you love Jesus, actually starts now. That's why it starts now. It's embodied in a person. If you want those things, pay attention to your deep longings. If you want those things, they're in the person of Jesus. It's a great quote from uh, C.S. Lewis. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prizes which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very centre of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Listen to this. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? See, Lewis is saying a similar thing. They aren't commodities. They're things that exist within a person. And if you want them, you need to be connected to the person. Now, second thing I wanted to do in this point was just look very quickly at the strategy, the evangelism strategy of the first converts. Now, what is, what's an evangel? An evangel is someone who goes and tells good news. That's what they are. So what is the evangelism strategy? Have a look at verse 42. Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. He told him enough to get him to Jesus, the person of Jesus. What what did Philip say to Nathaniel after Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, come and see. Come and see. He brings him to Jesus. Now what's fascinating about, uh, one commentator um, made the comment about, which is what they do, uh, about uh, Andrew in verse 42 bringing Peter to Jesus. He says every time Andrew shows up in John's gospel, he's bringing someone to Jesus. You know, truth is always important. It's never not important. But evangelism isn't mainly about proving God to be true. It isn't mainly an intellectual arm wrestle. It isn't mainly about being right. It isn't mainly about apologetics and have a good case, having a good case for what you believe. They are all good and important things. Evangelism is mainly about helping people to get to Jesus. That's what it's about. Amen? That's what it is. Everything revolves around helping people to interact with the person of Jesus. So one of the best um, bits of advice I've ever heard about evangelism, which I've often employed when I'm having a conversation with someone who doesn't know Jesus, is you should just go and read Jesus. (laughs) Just go and read Mark. Take a simple gospel. Just go and read it. Like, Like, have a read. See if as a person he's compelling to you. Engage with him. Listen to the things that he says. A question for you would be, have you found Jesus and realised he's the one that you've been looking for all of your life? Have you? Have you? Well, 
Go and tell some other people they're the one, that, that he's the one that they're looking for. He's the one that they're looking for. Watch, watch and listen to people closely and listen to their deep, deep longings and think about how they're fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And then do what you can do to get them to Jesus. And, and when I say that, I'm not saying do what you can do to get them a Christian. It's like, no, just get them to Jesus. Just get them to interact with him as a person. Do what you can there. And you leave, uh, you leave the rest of that work to the Lord. It's a big idea that I want to finish here on. Evangelism is getting people to Jesus. Three, me and you, and this is where we're going to finish. Um, up until this point in the message, I've looked at our response to Jesus. And so it's been us looking at Jesus like you, only you. Only you are the one that we're, you're the one that meets our hearts. Um, most deeply Um, we've been looking at over the last little while how we bend around Jesus there's a really interesting dynamic that happens in this passage is it's not just a one-way street now in in one sense you ought to expect this because that's the nature of being personal it's a it's a nature of being a relational being that it's not a one-way street so what we actually find is there's a bit of traffic going in the other direction it's not just about Jesus and the way that we need to bend around him he's actually pushing back uh, kind of into us. We don't just see and know Jesus. Jesus sees and knows us. What a surprise. Um, but Jesus doesn't just see us as we are. He sees the us he's going to make us into. Let me, uh, let me uh, show you this. Jesus sees and knows us as we are. Just read this section, verse 47 and 51. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What a beautiful question that Nathanael asks. How do you know me? What's, what's going on here? Jesus sees in Nathaniel a man in whom there's no deceit or no guile. Now, there's a play on an Old Testament story that's going on here, and it's a story of Jacob. And many of you would know Jacob and Esau, that Jacob swindled the birthright out of his brother Esau. And in the end, Jacob ends up wrestling with, uh, with God um, in Genesis 32, 24 to 28, because he was a, he was a sneaky, sneaky man. Um, And then, let me read you a section out of it. Um, And a man wrestled with Jacob, then the Lord wrestled with Jacob until the breaking of the day when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. He touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And then there's this amazing question that gets asked. Um, And he said to him, what is your name? That's a good question for someone who's been deceitful and snaked a birthright off of someone by pretending they're someone else. And there's this interaction. And in the end, what actually happens in verse 28 of Genesis 32, then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob needs to become Israel because he's deceptive. What's Jesus saying about 
um, Nathaniel, that he's already Israel. He's not deceptive. He's got a true heart for God. And there's a sense here, although it's a little bit hard to work out from the information and the evidence that we've got, that uh, this idea of a fig tree pops up through the scriptures, that it's, it's got some allusions to home and maybe the way that Nathaniel hung out with God. He was, it, it looks like Nathaniel's just got a, a massive heart for God and Jesus is going, I've seen that. I see you. I see your heart. And it's in a good place. And, and you need to know this morning, folks, that Jesus sees you and knows you as you are. He doesn't miss it. He sees you. But that, that's not the only thing that Jesus sees about people in this passage. Jesus also sees and knows what he will make of you. Yeah, so John 1, verse 41 to 42. Andrew first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. What does Jesus do? He doesn't duck down to the registry of births and deaths and marriages and just does a deed poll change on this guy's name. Back in the day, if you change someone's name, it's about their whole person, their whole character, the whole personality. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, this is the person I'm going to turn you into. This is the person I'm going to turn you into. This is going to be your new character. And you know what Cephas means? Rock. Peter and Cephas, those two names mean the same thing. They mean rock. Now, if you know anything about Peter, (laughs) he's a long way from being a rock most of the time. He's impulsive, volatile, he's unreliable. But Jesus sees the person he's made him to be and who he's going to turn him into. And I want to say the same thing to you. That Jesus doesn't just see where you are. He sees the person he made you to be and he sees the person he's going to grow you into. So here's a question for you. What name would Jesus give to you? And I don't mean like Phil. All right. I mean the meaning. And, and it's not the same. Everyone in this room is, is not going to have the same name because God's made you all uniquely. I remember uh, hearing John Piper before he started having children and I remember John Piper saying, uh, give your children a name that they can grow into. That's what Piper said. And I just went, yeah, there's something in that. Now, if you didn't do that, that's okay. All right? I haven't sinned against anyone or John Piper, but if that were possible. But what name would Jesus give to you? What, who, who are you? Who has God made you to be? And what is God doing with you that you are growing into? Well, maybe that one's a bit hard for you to uh, answer that question. So let me ask you a, a follow-up question that perhaps might be a little bit easier. Um, I have to literally do this right now. But what about the people around you? Like, look at the people around you what what phrase would you use to describe the person you can see that God's turning them into yeah sometimes we're much clearer about someone else than we are about ourselves 
your husband, your wife, your, your children. And then what you need to do, if, if you see this thing that God's building into someone, you need to tell them. <laughs> you need to tell them because that's what Jesus does, right? He tells him, he tells Peter, he goes, this is, you're a rock, man. He's just like, yeah, like I'm the furthest thing away from a rock right now. And he goes, no, no, you're a rock and you're going to grow into that. Let's see you growing into that. I'm going to make that happen in you. So maybe the worship team can come out. Um, and if you guys can just play for a couple of minutes without starting the song. You know what I'd really love for you to do is I'd love for you to think about someone else and the person that you can see that God's building them into and, and do your best to summarise it in a phrase or a sentence or... You can, maybe you can... I'll give you two options. You can opt for um, telling someone that you see them and you see where they're at, you see what's going on for them right now. It doesn't have to be someone in this room. It doesn't even have to be now. But what I want you to do now is just think about it. Pray about it. Um, maybe there's someone who just needs to know that you see them. You see where they're at. You see what's going on. Maybe there's someone who needs the other one. Right? So I, I think I... It doesn't have to be gospel truth, right? So let's just be open about that, the fact that it's not divinely inspired. So we just get over that hurdle. But someone who we go up to and we just say, I, I think I can see a bit of what God's up to in you. And, and this is what it looks like to me. And bless them with it. You could, you could do that today. You could, you could text someone. You could do it later. But I'd love for you just to take a moment or two and, and pray and ask God to uh, help you to see someone and, um, and have something good to say to someone. All good? Just take a moment while the music plays and then we'll sing.